you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 22. Acts 22, and we'll be in verses 22 all the way through Acts 23, verse 11, together this morning. So I wanted to let you guys know I'm going to be out for the next couple of weeks. So I have the opportunity to go to Perth, Australia, where I've been a few times to preach at two different conferences. I'll be preaching about 15 times total in 12 days between two conferences, some churches, a men's breakfast, some school chapels, all kinds of stuff. And so I'm heading out on Tuesday night, and I'll get back uh, like Monday, May the, uh, May the 8th, I think, or something like that. So I'm going to be gone two weeks. Please be in prayer as I'm out. It's a neat opportunity to, uh, to serve Christ in this way, and um, uh, just uh, I'm excited about the multiple opportunities. I'm just sad to be a- away from you and from my family for so long, but that's the cost of missions, isn't it? Part of the sacrifice of our missionaries is they're away from family and friends, and that's part of our calling too as a pastor, uh, is to send our pastor out and let him serve in some of those places. And so I appreciate your prayers. Look forward to giving uh, you a report when I get back. And thank you for the opportunity from the elders to allow me to go. And uh, we have some good preachers lined up for you while I'm on the way. Next week, we'll have James Street, and he's filled the pulpit many times here. does a phenomenal job. You'll enjoy hearing from him next Sunday. And then on May the 7th, it'll be Joe Keller. Joe Keller, as well, has been a friend and filled our pulpit many times. So hopefully you guys will be really blessed and encouraged with those two guys as they preach for the next couple of weeks. So make sure you come and uh, be, be here, be a part of what God's doing here at our church. But this morning, we're diving into Acts 22, 22 to 23, 11. And the title for the sermon is ongoing resistance to the gospel. We're going to be seeing from now till the end of the book, really, some ongoing resistance to the gospel. So let's pick up in Acts 22, 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Await with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had had him bound. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priests, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, order you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, 
would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended, uh, and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and to bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." Father, we're grateful to read this passage this morning, a lot of movement as we can see uh, here, your protection of Paul, but there's an incredible ongoing resistance to the gospel, and I just pray that you would teach us what you want us to learn today as we examine this passage so that we can live out our testimony and our witness for you even in the midst of adversity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have read that in the northeastern United States, codfish are a big commercial business. There's a a market for eastern cod all over, especially in areas farthest removed from the northeastern coastline. But the public demand has posed a problem for shippers. At first, they froze the cod and then shipped them elsewhere, but freezing them takes away much of the flavor. So then they experimented with shipping the codfish alive in tanks of seawater. But that proved to be even worse. Not only did the cod still lose their flavor, but they became soft and mushy. And the texture of codfish was seriously affected. Finally, some creative person solved the problem in the most innovative manner. The codfish were placed in a tank of water along with their natural enemy, the catfish. And from the time that the cod left the East Coast until it arrived in its westernmost destination, those ornery catfish chased the cod all over the tank. And as you guessed it, when the cod arrived at the market, they were as fresh as when they were first caught. And there was no loss of flavor, nor was the texture affected. If anything, they were better than before. Well, what is true about codfish is also true about those of us who call ourselves disciples of Christ. If the church belongs to the Lord, he could have arranged it in such a way that the church would have thrived in a very friendly environment that accepted us and our message. And we could live happily ever after until we're taken up to be with the Lord for all eternity. But the Lord knew that if these things played out in that way, then it may have been that we would lose our taste that we would lose our flavor. 
And so for obvious reasons, the Lord put the church in a hostile environment in the world, and from the very inception of the church, she has faced opposition and has gone through and continues to go through some extremely difficult circumstances. And through it all, not only has she survived, but the church has thrived and grown by leaps and bounds, and the gates of hell have not been and never will be able to prevail against Christ's church. And even before the inception of the New Testament church, the Old Testament saints faced similar type experiences, as the author of the book of Hebrews provides a summary statement of this fact in Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, where it says, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment, and they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's that's for the Old Testament saints, the persecution they faced. And the first recorded incident of opposition of the gospel in the book of Acts, the book that we're studying, began against the church even at the end of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The, the apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they miraculously began to speak in other languages. And some in the crowd, they, they laughed and they ridiculed them in a scornful manner and they accused the apostles of being drunk. And that relatively mild opposition led to the arrest of Peter and John after they had healed the lame man at the gate called Beautiful there at the temple in Acts 3 and 4. And then in Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin again arrested and imprisoned, this time all the apostles. And the next outbreak of persecution include the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And at this point, the murder of Stephen really served as a catalyst for the first widespread persecution of the church, which began in Acts chapter 8. And further persecution came from King Herod. And seeking to please the Jewish authorities, he executed James and he arrested Peter in Acts chapter 12. And after Paul's encounter with the glorified Christ on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, he became Christianity's leading evangelist. Ironically, Paul, once the chief persecutor of Christians, now became the most persecuted of all. Jewish opposition first rose against him in Damascus shortly after his conversation, or shortly after his conversion. And certainly you remember when they lowered him down in the basket outside of the wall there in Acts 9.23. And then he met with further opposition from, believing, uh, from unbelieving Jews throughout his missionary journeys. On the island of Cyprus, he was confronted by a Jewish prophet. The unbelieving Jews at Pisidian Antioch were filled with jealousy, and they opposed Paul's teaching at Iconium and Lystra and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth and Ephesus, and then even Corinth again. Paul faced great persecution. And even when he arrived here to Jerusalem in chapter 20 and in chapter 21, we see that Paul faced great hostility from his countrymen. And what we're seeing here is an ongoing resistance to the gospel. But there's something about persecution that purifies the church. And there's something about suffering that sweetens grace. And there's something about the chase of the catfish that improves the taste of the codfish. 
How true it is, but Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so as we evaluate this ongoing resistance to the gospel, I want to give you this morning four headings that will help frame this text for our time together this morning. We're going to look at number one, how Paul reveals his Roman citizenship. And then number two, Paul ends up rebuking the high priest. Number three, Paul does refer to the resurrection. And then number four, Paul rests in the comfort that Christ provides. Let's start with number one this morning. Paul reveals his Roman citizenship. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says the riot resumes. The riot resumes in verses 22 through 24. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. We know that a a huge riot had initially broken out in Jerusalem because of the false accusations that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing Trophimus, an identified Ephesian Gentile, into the court of the Jews. And the city at that time was stirred up in an uproar, and they had seized Paul, and they had drug him just outside of the temple, and they began beating him to death. And then the Roman commander or tribune by the name of Claudius Lysias had Paul arrested and bound and they carried him up the steps to the barracks of the Atonia Fortress. And after receiving permission to speak to the crowd, Paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in their own language. And at that time, Paul gave a defense He gave his personal testimony, and Paul told the crowd how Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he talked about how the God of our fathers had commissioned him to be a faithful witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And then in Acts 22, verse 21, the verse just prior to our text this morning, where we ended last week, and he said to me, that's Jesus saying to Paul, the testimony is given, verse 21, go, for I will send you Um, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, it was up to this moment that they had listened to Paul's testimony, but now they they raise their voices against him, and the riot resumes. They, They raise their voices, and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And you ask, well, what? What so infuriated the mob at this point and the reason that they were so upset and they were shouting and throwing their cloaks and flinging dust into the air is because they could not tolerate the thought that Gentiles could be saved without first becoming Jewish converts. It was despicable in their prejudice. They they believed that Gentiles, if they were to be saved, 
then certainly first they would have to conform to Jewish law. They would have to be converted to being Jews. And the fact that the Gentiles could be saved without coming through Judaism enraged these legalists. And to them, it was a blatant heresy that Gentiles could be made spiritually equal to Jewish people before God simply by believing in the resurrection, by believing in Christ. Paul talks about this being a mystery in the Old Testament that is revealed in the New Testament, and he talks about that in Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. When he writes this, he says, "When, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that was Paul's preaching, that Gentiles in Christ are fellow heirs. They also receive the promise. They receive salvation, they receive God's presence, and they'll receive even entrance into the kingdom. And this mystery of Christ being in the Gentiles and bringing the Gentiles and the Jews together as members of the same body, if they come to Christ through his gospel, was appalling to the unbelieving Jews. They couldn't stomach this thought. This had been clarified many times by Paul in passages like Galatians 3.28 that says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he's not saying you don't keep the the identity of I'm Jewish or Greek ethnically in in your ethnical heritage or that you somehow dissolve your gender of male or female or even your status as slave or free. He doesn't say dissolve them entirely, but he says in Christ we're one. Still have some differences, but we're one in Christ because it's Christ that is our unifying theme. And at this point, this tribune, of course, here in Jerusalem had no option but to bring Paul back into the safety of the barracks and to examine him further to see why in the world they were shouting against him like this. And so this brings us to verses 25 to 29 where we can read about the protection of Roman citizenship verses 25 to 29, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, why, or excuse me, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So what's going on here? Well, in verse 24, the tribune said that Paul should be examined by flogging. And this kind of whipping or scourging was a form of torture. The commander believed that this might be the only way to extract an answer out of Paul about what he must have done to make the crowd so upset. And so the Roman flogging was known to have been so brutal that many died just from this type of scourging. 
And so they're, they're the same whipping, as you know, is what Jesus had endured just before he went to the cross. That's part of why he couldn't carry the cross all the way to Golgotha. And such a beating would have, been, uh, would, would have surpassed at this point anything that Paul had previously experienced. Though he had been tortured and beaten, this particular Roman imprisonment and a Roman beating was to a whole new level. And so in preparation, the guards would stretch him out with leather ties in order to make his skin tight and his body taut in order to maximize the damage. And the whip or the flagellum was composed of a wooden hammer or a wooden handle, I should say, a wooden handle uh, with leather thongs tipped with bits of metal and bone that were designed to shred the skin off the back and even around the side all the way down to the muscles or even to the very bone. At this point, Paul directly asked the centurion if it was indeed legal to scourge a Roman citizen when he was yet uncondemned. And so this matter here was not only unlawful for a, a, a Roman citizen to be whipped, but it was even unlawful for a Roman citizen to be bound to be tied up before his guilt had been proved. And similar to today, the accused would be considered innocent until proven guilty. When the centurion heard this, he quickly went up and told the tribune what was happening. And Roman law again forbid the scourging of a Roman citizen, and doing so could actually cost you your life. So the tribune verified, are you a Roman citizen? To which Paul responded, yes. Some suggest that Roman citizens carried some type of seal or identification to prove their citizenship. They could have also taken the time to check in with the Roman offices in Tarsus where Paul was born, which would have taken a while. It is also known that if you did claim to be a Roman citizen and it was proven that you're not, that you would then face capital punishment for sure. So in case you're just thinking he could just say it, I'm a Roman citizen. You know, once you say that, if you can't prove it and it's not eventually proven, you would be killed. And so the, the in, intrigued by this claim that Paul was a Roman citizen, the tribune wanted to know how Paul had become one because the commander had paid a large sum for his own citizenship. Historians show that there are about three different ways you could become a Roman citizen. The most natural way would have been becoming a Roman citizen by birth. Such was the case of Paul. He was born in Tarsus, which was known as a free city of the Roman Empire, which means his father apparently had also become a Roman citizen and likely was a very wealthy man since he was able to pay the means for Paul to have the highest education and then also to travel from Tarsus to Jerusalem to train under Gamaliel, who was the leading rabbi of the day. The second way to get your Roman citizenship would be that it could be granted by imperial decree as some type of reward for services that were rendered to the Roman Empire. The third way to get your Roman citizenship would be to purchase Roman citizenship. And although this wasn't entirely legal, it was often obtained by a bribe. And in this way, the tribune obtained his citizenship by paying a very large sum, most likely the tribune Lysias Claudius had purchased his citizenship in a way that was considered dishonorable, but it was recognized all the same. And in a way, Paul's citizenship outranked the tribune's citizenship since Paul was by birth and Lysias had to go through bribery. And so at this point, 
Those who were about to examine Paul by scourging withdrew immediately and they and the tribune were afraid as they realized that they had bound a Roman citizen unlawfully. I just want us to see here throughout Paul's arrest and him continuing to share his testimony, just a couple of things about Paul here as he continues to defend the faith and to be a godly witness up to this point. I mean, so far as we've worked through this for the last few weeks, we've definitely been learning from Paul how to share your testimony in the midst of a very difficult situation. First, Paul accepted his circumstances as God ordained it. Second, Paul used this situation as an opportunity to share Christ. Third, we see that Paul was respectful of his captors. Fourth, Paul exalted Christ with his words and his actions. And then fifth, Paul has always maintained a proper attitude, one of selfless love. He was willing to pay any price in order to share the love of Christ, particularly with his fellow Jews. And I hope that we can apply some of these simple principles today as we share our testimony in a hostile world. But this leads us up to our second major heading. Number two, Paul then rebukes the high priest. And that next blank says, the blessing of a good conscience. The blessing of a good conscience. Let's start with just verse 30 under this second heading. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So here we have Lysias, the tribune, is thoroughly perplexed and so decides to have Paul brought before and judged by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And Lysias is probably thinking, look, you're, you're, you're the ones who caused the riot in the first place. You wanted Paul killed, therefore you should try him by your own law. And this has to remind us in part of how Pilate could find nothing wrong with Jesus and sent him to Herod, and then Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, and then Pilate sent Jesus to be tried by the Sanhedrin as well. And if we look at verse 31, here we read, uh, it says, uh, or in verse 1, I should say, the next chapter, it, sa- it says, um, It says in verse, let's see, 23, verse 1, yeah. It says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So Paul, it's a significant defense here that Paul's giving. He looked directly at the council, and he basically says, I have nothing to hide. He, He knew he was innocent from any wrongdoing, and he had complete confidence that God was with him even in this moment. And because of his faith in the Lord, he did not cower in fear or in guilt. And Paul was always motivated by a desire to please God. And Paul said in Acts 24, 16, that I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And by making the claim to live before God with a clear conscience, Paul put the members of the Sanhedrin on the defensive. Since he had acted in obedience to God, then by opposing him, they were actually opposing God. And to live with a a good conscience, as Paul talks about, or a clear conscience, did not mean that all of Paul's actions had been in the right, but it does mean that Paul felt no guilt for anything that he had done in spite of the Sanhedrin's accusations, Paul's conscience did not condemn him, though the Jews had condemned him. 
I mean, the word conscience, as we're looking at this important word here, Paul using that as part of his defense, that he's got a a good conscience of obeying God up to this very moment. The the word conscience is one of Paul's favorite words, you could say. He, He used it twice in this book, here in this passage, and I just read Acts 24, 16. And then he uses the word conscience 21 other times in his letters to the churches. The, the word conscience means to know with. It means to know together. The, the conscience is the inner judge or witness that approves correct behavior while at the same time disapproving wrong behavior. And this is taught by Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, to some degree, where he writes in that familiar passage, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not know the law. So he's saying, hey, even Gentiles have some type of moral code that's kind of written inside of the fiber of their being. And when they follow their own law, while they don't even know the law, it shows they have a conscience. And verse 15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So their conscience either accuses you or it excuses you. And this passage, again, is reminding us that everyone has a conscience, believers and unbelievers. And the conscience is designed by God. It's part of that imago Dei, that you're created with a spirit, and that spirit also possesses a conscience. And it's an immaterial part of who you are that knows right from wrong. And it's, it's really designed, that inner part of you is designed by God to reflect his image and to accuse us of wrongdoing while also approving us of right behavior. Now, it's important to realize that the conscience does not set the standard. It only applies it. The standard of right and wrong is not your conscience, and it's not the culture, but it's the highest moral authority that we have available to us, which, of course, is the Word of God. The word of God is what is the standard of morality and our conscience is gonna hold us captive to the word of God and that could be in a good way or that could be in a negative way depending on whether or not your behavior and your thinking and your actions measure up to what scripture teaches. The conscience may be compared, as many have done, to a window that lets in light. You can read about this in MacArthur's Vanishing Conscience. I've seen it in Warren Wiersbe's uh, commentary and a number of other sources. But I love this illustration. The conscience can be compared to a window that lets in the light. God's law, his word, is the light, and the window is the conscience. And the cleaner the window is, the more light that shines in. And as the window gets dirty, then the light can become dimmer. And sometimes the light can be completely cut off, if it, and it doesn't mean that the light's not there. It just simply means that you can't see the light anymore. And so the light, again, is God's word. Our conscience is the window, and we need to keep the window clean so that what we're filtering is accurate with Scripture. And a good conscience or a pure conscience is one that lets the light in. It lets God's light in so that we are properly convicted if we're doing wrong and we are actually encouraged if we're doing what would be right. 1 Timothy 3.9 stresses the importance of this for deacons or servants in the church when it says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear 
conscience. A defiled conscience, like what is mentioned in Titus 1.15, is a conscience that has been sinned against so much that it has become calloused and is no longer dependable. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The worst of all consciences would be the seared conscience of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so the seared conscience is so covered with scar tissue from ongoing sin that it no longer responds to the proddings of divine truth. And on the other hand, the Bible commends a good conscience and a blameless conscience and a clear conscience. And such spiritual, healthy conscience uh, can result from uh, the forgiveness of sin based on the atoning work of Christ. A Christian's conscience is to inform them of God's word and is able to, uh, to assess their, their, their actions and their thoughts objectively in light of Scripture. And as Christians, we can strengthen our conscience by constantly washing our, our minds and our hearts with Scripture. We need to know what the Bible says. Not what do you think and what does the culture say? What does the word of God say on this issue? That's where I want my conscience informed. And in this particular coming back into this context here, Paul's saying, look, I have a clear conscience. I have a good conscience. Everything that I've been doing from the time I've been converted up to this moment is for God. I am a representation of his light and his transforming work, and I'm fully and rightly informed in my conscience, and I'm not being accused by my conscience, rather I'm being affirmed in my actions. And so that then leads us to verses two through three, where we can read next about the accusation against the high priest, because as Paul's talking about, he's got a good conscience up to this day, verses two and three, and the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? Well, this Ananias is obviously different than the Ananias of Acts 9, who returned Paul's sight to him. This Ananias at this time was the high priest. And Josephus, well-known Roman historian, described him as an insolent, hot-tempered, private, and greedy man. In fact, later, just before uh, Rome destroyed the temple, he was killed. because He was known as a, as a bad guy. So this, in a sense, could have been a little bit of a prophetic utterance of what may happen to him, but Paul's outburst was triggered by the high priest's illegal command to have Paul struck on the mouth. But Ananias was so offended at Paul saying that he had a good conscience and all that he had done against Judaism from his perspective that he had the nearest council member slap Paul across the mouth. Now, that was far more serious than the slap heard around the world when Will Smith smacked Chris Rock in the mouth last year at the Academy Awards. That's just for entertainment, right? But this is a serious thing going on here where the high priest had Paul slapped in the mouth. This, this word strike depicts a more, more than just a, a mere slap to the face. It's the same word used in Acts 21.32 to speak of the crowd's beating of Paul and of the Roman soldiers' beating of Jesus near to death in Matthew 27.30. So it's more than just a, a little bit of a smack. It was, a, it was an affront. It was an attack. 
and shocked at Ananias's outrageous breach of Jewish law, Paul retaliated, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And according to Deuteronomy 25, one through two, Paul was justified in that position of accusing the high priest, at least in the sense of noting that the Mosaic law for the high priest would have prevented having Paul struck because he had not yet been condemned clearly of any crime. Paul might have also remembered what had happened between Jesus and the Pharisees years earlier in Matthew 23, 27, when Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Another possible reference that's listed in the cross-references there in your margin would be from Ezekiel 13, 10 through 16, where Ezekiel denounced false prophets in the Old Testament, and he called them walls plastered over with whitewash, doomed to fall in the wake of God's divine judgment. In other words, Paul is accusing the high priest of being a hypocrite. And he is accusing him of looking good on the outside, but on the inside, he was rotten to the core. And the high priest may have had the title and the position, but he didn't have the right heart or the humility to be a true servant of God. And some have wondered how to harmonize Paul's strong language with his declaration to the Corinthians, when reviled, we are to bless, 1 Corinthians 4.12. They point out in contrast the example of Jesus, who while being reviled did not revile in return, and while suffering he uttered no threats, 1 Peter 2, 23. And when Jesus was also struck in violation to the law, he merely asked in John 18, 23, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? So we could uh, very uh, appropriately examine Paul's behavior in the situation alongside of Christ's uh, behavior in the exact same situation. And the answer to why Paul responded differently than Jesus, of course, is that Jesus was always perfect. And no man has ever been perfect. And Jesus was the sinless son of God. And Paul, while being a courageous witness and a committed Christian, was still a sinner. And sometimes his, his anger got to him. And sometimes it, it, it came out and he vividly described the battle of indwelling sin in Romans 7. So this outburst was one of the few times when his flesh prevailed. And I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying it's understandable. And uh, we still want to uh, set a guard over our mouths, right? And watch over the door of our lips. So I'm not justifying his behavior because then we see in verses 4 through 5 in your next blank, the apology for this outburst. Verses four through five, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul's very reply here in verses four through five shows that he didn't even really know that this was the high priest. And there could be several reasons for that. 
Paul had been gone for a time away from Jerusalem and Ananias could have become the high priest while he was out. It's also possible that Ananias in this somewhat impromptu meeting that was ordered by, by Lysias Claudius at the last moment that, that uh, the high priest was not wearing his proper robes signifying him as the high priest. Another reason could have been we know that Paul's eyesight wasn't the best and in all the commotion and excitement, maybe he couldn't see clearly. Regardless of the reason, once he was confronted with reviling God's high priest, Paul quickly offered an apology. This comes from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, which says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So again, whatever the explanation for Paul's failure to recognize the high priest, Paul made no excuses, right? By admitting his error, Paul accepted his responsibility for his words. And such a a humble, ready-to-admit-my-mistakes attitude is really the mark of a true spiritual leader. And so far, we've seen Paul reveal his Roman citizenship. We've seen him rebuke the high priest. But let's move on to our third heading where Paul refers to the resurrection in verses 6 through 10. Your next blank says, the apostles' strategy. The apostle strategy, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And so Paul's experience with the high priest most likely convinced him that he was not going to be successful in obtaining a fair hearing from the Sanhedrin. And so Paul now decides to move on from his testimony that we've talked about. It's a very powerful thing to share your testimony. He kind of moves past the testimony at this point, and he begins to discuss a clear theological truth. Paul recognizes in this moment that the Sanhedrin is made up of the leading Sadducees and the leading Pharisees of the day. And knowing the significant theological differences that existed between these two groups, Paul decided to get straight to the point. And he says again in verse 6, it's it's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul is in effect saying I'm not really on trial for breaking the Mosaic law. I'm not really on trial because you think I've somehow defied, uh, defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews because I didn't do that. I- I'm really on trial. If we're just going to be honest, it's all about the resurrection. I'm on trial because of my testimony of seeing Jesus alive on the road to Damascus, which means that he has been raised from the dead. And I'm on trial for believing in the hope of the resurrection and the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, who is the Lamb of God, who alone can take away the sins of the world. And Paul claimed as much when he stood before Felix, as we'll see in Acts 24, 21, when he says, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you on this day. So we know that's really the real reason. Everything else was a periphery. But if there's one thing that we should be willing to live or die for, it would be the resurrection. Everything else is kind of like a secondary issue, and it's, and it's a different type of debate. But Paul and his resurrection from the dead claim here that can happen is at the very center of this argument. So Paul knows that. And he knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of have different views even on that. As we see in verses 7 through 9, your next blank, the Sanhedrin's division. 
verses 7 through 9. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man, or in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So here we're reading about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We're starting to learn that they were socially and politically and theologically at odds with each other. And Paul was a Pharisee. He makes no apology for that claim, as we've read about him saying that in other places. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, like in Philippians 3. And so he was a Pharisee, and his belief in the possibility of a resurrection would place him, along with the other Pharisees, at odds with the Sadducees. And for the benefit of those of us who are maybe somewhat unaware of the distinctions between the two groups, Luke briefly summarizes them for us there in verses 8 and 9. He talks about how the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels, and they don't believe in spirits, and they basically didn't believe in anything supernatural. And while the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, they did believe in a general concept of resurrection after you die as well as they believed in spiritual things. And so the Sadducees also only accepted the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses and the beginning of the Bible, as being authoritative. And they rejected any other concept or any other book or any other thought of an afterlife. While the Pharisees, on the other hand, not only accepted the Pentateuch, but also the writings and the prophets, and they did embrace the thought of an afterlife or some type of general future resurrection. And so at this point, there's a great clamor that arose between the two parties as they began to argue with one another. And in an unbelievable turn of events, some of the Pharisees said, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? Now, that's an amazing turn of events because a minute ago, they wanted him dead. And now they're saying that we hate the Sadducees so much, we want to now defend our sect against your sect because we're better than you. And so bitter was this theological dispute between two parties that the Pharisees were willing to now defend Paul against the Sadducees. And then in verse 10, we read about the tribune's intervention. The tribune's intervention, verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn in pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by forcing and bringing, by force and bringing him into the barracks. And so Lysias was no doubt watching in growing frustration as the discord and the dismay turned into a disaster. And even after bringing Paul before the highest Jewish court, he was no nearer to discovering what crime exactly had the apostle committed. And so Paul was in more danger being in the midst of the Jews than he was being in the midst of a Roman prison. And so once again, the Romans had to rescue Paul from his own people who hated him as much as they hated Christ. So Paul was brought back up the steps to the army barracks at the Atonia Fortress. And Paul's appearance before the Sanhedrin here at the, in this passage actually marks the fifth time and the last time 
that this Sanhedrin council was called upon to evaluate the claims of Christ. The first time was when Jesus himself stood before the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14. The second time involved Peter and John in Acts 4. The third time followed the arrest of all the apostles in Acts 5. The fourth time was at the trial of Stephen in Acts 6, just before he was stoned. And then here in Acts 23 is the fifth and final time, five times, the Sanhedrin had the opportunity to hear and to accept the message of the resurrection. And five times, they rejected Christ. They rejected the resurrection. And so at this point, they have clearly condemned themselves. And their rejection also symbolizes the nation's rejection of its Messiah. And so is there any hope or comfort found in such a discouraging text of how they treated Paul and again condemned even the true resurrection of Christ? And the answer is yes, there's still hope. Even in this text, as we look at our fourth heading, the last verse of our text this morning, Paul rests in the comfort that Christ provides. And we see here in verse 11, three parts to Christ communicating with Paul in this moment. And first of all, he gives him a message of courage, a message of courage. In verse 11, at the very first part, it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. What an encouraging word, right? Take courage. A few years after Paul's conversion, when Paul's life was in danger in Jerusalem, back in Acts 11, Jesus had appeared to him, remember, in a vision in the temple and told him what to do. And when Paul was discouraged later in Corinth and contemplated going elsewhere, Jesus again appeared to him and encouraged him to stay. And now when Paul was at his lowest again, Jesus appeared once more to encourage him and to instruct him. And Paul would later receive encouragement during the storm and during his trial in Rome. And so when Jesus said in the Great Commission in Lo, I am with you always. That's got to be a great assurance to Paul. The Lord's message to Paul here in verse 11, again, it's one of encouragement. Take courage. Could also be translated, be of good cheer. Jesus often spoke these exact same words during his earthly ministry. He spoke them to the paralyzed man in Matthew 9, verse 2. He spoke them to the woman who suffered with bleeding in Matthew 9, verse 22. He shouted them out to the disciples in the storm in Matthew 14, 27. He repeated them in the upper room in John 16, 33. And as God's people, we can always take courage we can always be of good cheer in times of difficulty because the Lord is still with us and he's still there to see us through. Jesus also gave Paul a message of commendation, a message of commendation. Not only does he say take courage, but he says, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. And so he's commending him. The Lord did not rebuke Paul for going to Jerusalem. Rather, he commended him for the witness that he had given. And even though his witness had not been well received, Paul had done his part. He had been faithful. He had been obedient to point others to the saving work of Christ. And when you read about the account of Paul's days in Jerusalem, you may get the impression that everything that Paul did failed miserably. I mean, he attempted to win over the legalistic Jews by helping create, uh, you know, a, a sense of sponsoring those guys who were going through the ritual cleansing, and yet it just failed miserably. His attempt to win over the legalistic Jews only helped create a riot 
in the temple, and his witness before the Sanhedrin left the council in disarray and in confusion. But the Lord was pleased with Paul's testimony, and that's all that really counts. The Lord was commending him. Well done, Paul. You've been faithful to your testimony and to your witness. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Third, the message here that Christ gives is a message of confidence. It's a message of confidence. At the end of verse 11, he says, not only have you testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When Jesus says, you must testify also in Rome, this is a sure thing. This has been Paul's desire for months, but in the events which took place in Jerusalem, it seemed as though his desire might not be fulfilled. And so what an encouragement this is that Jesus himself gives the promise that Paul will indeed get the same testimony in the weeks that followed. Now, there would still be difficulties ahead, including many who would lie about him, fanatics who would make a vow to kill him, government officials who would ignore him, a shipwreck that almost consumed him, a viper that wouldn't let go of him. Yet he's still going to Rome, and he's going to share the gospel there in that imperial city, and the Lord was with him, and he was fulfilling his perfect plan to get his faithful servant to Rome. The gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth from Jerusalem to Rome by this very apostle, and the travel would now be on Rome's dime. And this encourages us today to be faithful in our witness, knowing that Jesus is our courage. Jesus is our help in times of trouble, and Jesus will finish in us what he has started all the way up to completion. And no matter what kind of ongoing resistance we face, no matter how much persecution we have to endure, no matter how many catfish chase us around the barrel, we wanna be witnesses of Christ in that sweet aroma that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? None of us are, but God's called us and he saved us. And in the midst of ongoing resistance, we have the light of the world inside of us. And so as we leave this morning, we can be encouraged from these application points there at the end of your outline as ongoing resistance to the gospel grows around us. So does our faith grow within us. Listen, people, the resistance is not going away. So stop asking for it. You know what I'm saying? God, help me be faithful. God, I wanna be a light for you open doors of opportunity. That's our prayer. The resistance will never go away, but our faith within us is growing. Second, maintaining a good conscience is one of the best ways to maintain a strong witness. Listen to me. If you're struggling with ongoing sin and you're getting beat up and slaughtered by the flesh, the world, or the devil, you're never going to stand for Christ. You got to take care of inventory at home. You got to be right with God and right with others. You want to be a salt and light in a, in a deafening community of the resistance that we're talking about? You got to make sure that you maintain with God's help by the atonement of the blood of Christ, a clear, good, and blameless conscience.
God help us in our sanctification. And then last, Jesus is always with us. He's always there. He's always with us to embolden us and to encourage us and to empower us. He will never leave you or forsake you, even in the midst of this moment, that he's back in the barracks and he's gonna have to travel to Rome. Jesus is right there comforting him, encouraging him, commending him, promising him a continuation of his mission. What a great encouragement. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Christ, we wanna call you to him on this day that after our last song, we'll have a few people standing right over here, and we'd love to tell you how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus by turning from your sin and turning to Christ and putting your faith in him. Or if you're here this morning and you're going through a difficult time or you need encouragement and prayer of any type, it's our joy to minister to you after the last song. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to see the hope even in the midst of great animosity to see the consistency of Paul's testimony even when he's up against very perilous situations and people. And I pray, God, that we would just take heart, that we would be encouraged. Because of Christ's encouragement to Paul, we could be greatly encouraged this very day. I pray that we would be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. I pray that we would be incredible ambassadors and soldiers in the army of Christ. pray that we would be quick to confess our wrongdoings, desperate to maintain a good conscience before God and men. Help us to be faithful witnesses in every area of our lives. Help us this week to have opportunities to give an answer to the hope that's within us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.